This morning, I wanted to uh, invite you into something that we've been talking a little bit about on uh, Saturday nights, and it's just this whole subject of worship. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson put it this way, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. One definition is as simple as this, worship is life. I've got a definition here. It says, worship, paying great honor and respect to revere, to venerate, to feel extreme adoration or devotion for a person or a thing. And uh, just to catch you up in case you haven't been involved in a Saturday night recently, here's one of the things that we talked about, that there are all different ways that we can worship. There are all different things, people, places, teams that we can worship. What we came to the conclusion of is really a lot of the time, the person that gets the most worship from us is ourselves. We do an awful lot of self-worship in our society. Uh, We worship ourselves. We worship our kids. Uh, A lot of times our schedule falls to the altar of whatever is going to be best for the family. We'll worship our family. And in this culture, it feels just almost right to do that. We're going to unpack some scriptures in just a moment where there was another culture that was just moving toward and inching its way toward just away from how we understand true worship to exist and more toward this more comfortable way to worship, of who to worship. Um, As a matter of fact, I wanted to draw your attention to uh, a, a couple of thoughts here. In Acts 17, 25, this verse helps us out with worship, I believe. It says, neither is he served by human hands, he being God, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. You see, that verse right there just reminds us that God does not need our worship. He is not a politician who is hoping for our vote so he can stay in elected God office. He is not a kitty cat who is really excited when we come home or come into this service and give him some strokes. And if we don't do that, then he goes and pouts in the corner. No, as a matter of fact, what we find in Scripture is that really, if we look at worship and this worship experience, we're going to discover it's more like this anchor. That Christ becomes the anchor that literally puts us in a place centered with God in all of life. Now, as we kind of unpack a little bit more of worship, and I take you on this ride a little bit, what is interesting is in near ancient Eastern times, the anchor, well, it was actually put on a smaller boat as the larger boat came into dock. And then the smaller boat would go in and attach it somewhere so that it was going to be secure. The larger boat would be secure. Um, it was actually a forerunner of the larger boat. And there's a verse that we're about to look at here that begins to show us and paint a picture of Christ as our anchor. And I want you to get that thought, that imagery in your mind right now that just imagine yourself as a first century Christian and you're reading through these passages that we're about to look at and you're thinking about anchor and you're thinking about the boat and you're thinking about it being secured. What's interesting is, and I'll go ahead and give you a little bit of the end in sight. In the catacombs, matter of fact, in some of first century cemeteries that have been unearthed, what we've discovered is there are anchors as symbols on the graves of believers, not crosses. You see, the cross wasn't the symbol of first century Christianity, not the secret symbol. It wasn't. And during all the persecution that was happening, it was actually an anchor 
that symbolized Christ. That symbolized Christ. It wasn't until Constantine came along in the early 300s and became the first Roman emperor to become converted to Christianity that then all of a sudden the persecution began to be reduced and the symbols, the secret symbols stopped and we stopped seeing the anchor and it began to get replaced by the cross. The anchor is a very interesting symbol for us. It's a weighty symbol. I mean, this is, yeah, we're talking some heavy, heavy structure here, right? Well, let me read you a couple of verses that help us out with that too. You ready for this? Uh, Kabod. It's the Hebrew word we find in the Old Testament meaning glory. In Psalm 66, it speaks about us giving glory to God, giving the highest respect possible, honoring him, right? Well, I, I was thinking about this, um, this time. I was, at, I was at Baylor University, and I was a sophomore, and it was 1988, and at presidential election time, and guess who comes onto the campus? President Ronald Reagan. And I'm in the marching band, right? And they put me on the stage, and I kid you not, I'm, I'm here on the stage with my alto saxophone, all proud and everything. And I mean, my stomach is like all jittery. And here comes Ronald Reagan walking up the stairs, walked right past me, right? And as he steps up, we get the signal from Dr. Haycock, boom, and we're doing hail to the chief, da 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 And my, my stomach is all in knots, and the crowd in the Ferrell Center is just going wild, and everybody's, you know, ho- hoping that George Bush is going to win because he's politicking for him, you know, and it's just crazy. Everybody's standing up. It moves into, I don't know, some other patriotic song we played, America the Beautiful, or Battle Hymn, or I don't know, Yankee Doodle, I don't know, whatever it was. Probably not Yankee Doodle. But... <laughs> But, but there was this physical component to worship. It, 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 it impacted our conduct, right? And in that kabod, that was what that glory actually represents, is that when we give glory to God, we're, it, it involves our conduct. It involves, whether we're kneeling, whether we're standing, whether we're raising our hands, whether, whatever it is we might be doing, there is this physical component. Literally, it transforms who we are as we are giving honor and respect to the president, the pope, to God. But then you come to, and I find this really interesting, you come to this other word here. It's kabod. It's in Psalm 72, 19. It says, praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Glory, kabod. This time, the root of that word is also found in 1 Samuel. It's when Eli gets the news that his two sons are dead and the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. And the scripture says that Eli falls back in his chair and he dies. He breaks his neck and he dies. Why? Because he's old and he's fat. Actually, it doesn't use the word fat. It uses this Hebrew root word here for weight, that he was heavy, that he was, there was a lot of substance to him. And here's what, here's what's so crazy, right? This word actually moves throughout the Old Testament and begins to give us an idea that quite possibly when we're looking at God and we speak about his glory, that that is a weighty thing. That he is all-encompassing. That that is the heaviest concept that we would ever grasp. That his pressure pressed into the earth through his son, Jesus Christ, and pushed down all the way into where we are. And we have the opportunity now come into contact with him in this relationship that presses and forms us 
as Corinthians speaks about, we are hard-pressed and crushed, but not destroyed. Why? Because he is transforming us into his image in our worship as we give him glory, as we are transformed, kabod, giving him glory because he is due glory, because he is glorious, he is weighty, he is the biggest deal. He's the biggest deal that we'll ever know. So, we've come into this moment corporately to worship. And let's not miss it. It's a big deal to be in here this morning. But let's also not miss that what we've discovered already is that worship is more than just this room. It's how our life intersects and interacts with the God of the universe who deserves all of our attention and all of our allegiance. And will our lives, here's the question we're going to look at this morning, will our lives be truly anchored in him? If they're not, here's what the scripture describes might just be the result. Romans 1.21, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. There's a tie here between glory, between our worship, between being centered in Christ and a grateful heart for all that he is, for all that he's done. Don't you want to thank someone? He deserves it. So um, I remember my first trip to the UK and um, we were doing missions there for about six, seven consecutive years and had developed, started developing a relationship with his pastor and his wife. And um, I, I, fe- I feel like I should have probably given a little bit more um, schooled, I guess. But I just kind of, I guess, ignorant on, I mean, I just think I'm going to the UK, they're very similar to us, you know, and, and, and I mean, you're an educated audience, you know the differences. And I knew some of them, but uh, there was one in particular that I really got caught off guard on as far as word usage. Um, I mean, s- several things, you know, you, I mean, you know the differences, right? I mean, you ask for a biscuit, you get a cookie, right? You ask for chips, you get fries. Um, uh, dinner is lunch, tea is supper, English muffins are crumpets. I mean, we got all that, right? Uh, you, there's more room in the boot than you think you should have because you discover the boot is actually the trunk of your car and not something you put on your foot. Um, but uh, we were headed out to the bowling alley, and um, <clears throat> we were staying with this uh, pastor and his wife, and uh, one of the people in our party uh, asked the pastor's wife if uh, she was going to be wearing pants. Uh, did not realize that pants in the UK means underwear. And um, it was really embarrassing for everybody. The conversation was just lots of red faces, you know. And, and uh, we, we look at that and think, you know, it's so easy, isn't it, for even our culture and a culture that's so very similar to ours to misinterpret, to not understand the customs, to not understand the language. Um, and the reality is when we look at the book of Hebrews, it, it, it can seem that way at times because we are not Jewish Christians, probably most of us in the room. And so it was written to these Jewish converts to Christianity that were experiencing an enormous amount of persecution. And they were beginning to consider, and some of them were already beginning to move away from 
what they had been converted to and moving back to what was more comfortable because what was more comfortable was not the object of the persecution. You see, the followers of the way, the followers of the one, the followers of Christ were the ones being persecuted. And so they began to think and consider, well, maybe we'll just head back into the Levitical priesthood way of doing things. We'll just move back into that priestly form of the old covenant and how we interact with God that way. And so this book that we're going to scan through rather quickly this morning um, is, is an argument to these Jewish Christian converts to say, listen, I know that your worship, you're, you're tempted to change worship and to move more into allowing worship to be all about religion rather than relationship. Hold on. Let's look back again at what this needs to be centered around, that it is centered around a person who is Jesus and he is superior. Now, it's really an amazing argument, but I'm going to have to give you a little bit of background so that you'll catch into why it's amazing. And then we'll discover what it means really for us. So if you're tracking with me at this point and you want to look in the scripture or look on uh, you version or just look at the screens, we are here with the writer of Hebrews saying, stop, Jesus is the solution, not the priest. And he begins to explain it even in the first chapter when he says, verse 1, long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer is saying, listen, Jesus has been here from the beginning, before the beginning, and he owns it all. He is the Son of God. Matter of fact, he is God. And this verse speaks to him as being the radiance of God's glory. We did a, a talk a while back, uh, Saturday night, where we had a, a, a vase up here with flowers. And we said that vase represents us as we are to reflect what's here. We are to show off the flowers. It's not about the vase. It's what's in the vase. And Jesus is said, and, and, and in that picture, it, re, it represents us. But in a very similar way, we're looking at this radiance aspect and seeing that Jesus is to be radiating God to the world. Easy for him to do, actually, because he is God. He is showing off who God is because he is God. And then the writer goes on, just in case it's a little too overwhelming for you, let's break it down a little bit. He's better also than the angels. You say, well, of course he is. I mean, we know that, right? Our culture, that's, that's that. But for them, it was a big deal. Verse 5, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son today, I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. When he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and all God's angels must worship him. Why was this important? Why did he build that case? Well, because in the Old Testament, what we find is we find the law being given to Moses and angelic beings were present. 
We understand that there were angels that were there in the mix, and the Jewish people recognized that, and the law was a big deal, and Moses is a big deal, and it's coming down with angels, and that's a big deal to the Jewish people. Positionally, they saw angels right here, and, he, and, and here's God, and, here's, and here, here are the angels, and what the writer is saying, uh, excuse me, hold on, let's bring these angels, okay, hold up, here we go, here's Jesus right here. Moving on, he's also better than Moses. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to one who appointed him just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Angels, okay, all right, all right, all right, I I get that. But Moses, whoa, wait a minute. These people are saying, hold on a minute. Moses is a big deal to us. I mean, he gave the law. And God's argument laid out here inspirationally through this writer is Moses was a deliverer sent by God, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. Jesus was a deliverer sent by God who is God. Moses was leading people to a physical temporal promised land. Jesus leads to an, to a physical eternal forever promised land. Moses was a deliverer out of the slavery of Egypt. Jesus is a deliverer out of our slavery of sin. This scripture highlights Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God, but Jesus built the house. He's saying, listen, I'm making an argument here that Jesus is way bigger than where you're about to go back and throw your allegiance. Jesus' faithfulness serves literally as a testimony to the character of God and also to this guarantee of forever. For the Jewish people, they equated Moses with the law. But these verses are saying, yes, indeed, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus trumps the law. But that's not all. Jesus is also better than Melchizedek. And you're going, Mel who? I I missed that. Bible trivia. Ah, should have practiced. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Later on in Hebrews, it speaks very specifically about Melchizedek and begins to lay out this argument about how Jesus is a greater high priest than Melchizedek. Why Melchizedek? I mean, that's kind of a bizarre person to just bring up here in the middle of this argument that he's giving to these people. Because if you remember back in Genesis, when Lot was taken capture, was captured by the four kings and Abram goes and rescues him and comes back Who's the king of Salem at the time? Who's reigning over Jerusalem? Who's the grand poobah at that moment? Who is priest and king? And it's Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, catch this, this is, this, is, this is really key. What happens is Melchizedek actually does something that's very, very important to the Jewish people. Abraham receives a blessing by Melchizedek. 
And Abraham also gives Melchizedek a tithe. And the tradition at the time was that the greater receives the tithe. The tradition was that the superior blesses the inferior. You put those two arguments together, here's what they're seeing. They're seeing Abraham, the father of our faith, wait a minute, he's tithing to this person here and he's being blessed by this person here. And wow, Melchizedek is even above Abraham. That's a big deal. And the writer's going, okay, I see where you're coming from, but don't miss it. Jesus has just moved ahead of Melchizedek. You think he was an important, the most important high priest ever? Jesus is far more significant than Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the greatest high priest who had ever lived. Even before there was a law, there was Mel. But the writer is saying both the law and the Levitical priesthood failed at giving believers true access to God forever. The old way was never to be the only way. It only dealt with the sins of the moment. But where the old covenant failed, there is a new covenant that has now succeeded. You see, Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. He was not of the Levitical priesthood. So so the writer is beginning to say, hey, listen, Jesus, this brother of another mother. Well, wait a minute. Let's not, well, hold on. Um, Well, this this priest of another tribe, the tribe of Judah, he's going, listen, this man who is the son of God is placing a high priesthood before you that is very, very different. It's very different because your formal priestly structure was set up in a very physical way. You see, there were blemishes and they had to go through this cleansing process and then they could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year and uh, provide the uh, sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people. And, and I mean, th- there were all these different things that had to take place. Why? Because the high priest was not perfect. But the scripture here defines this new high priest that's come on the scene as one who is perfect. Chapter 4 states, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. This new priesthood, and I I love this verse, chapter 9, verse 14. It's not on the screen, but it's one that you might want to circle in your Bible. I love chapter 9, verse 14, because it's the ultimate superhero verse. We've got all these superhero movies out right now, you know, and, and you know, that's great. But chapter 9, verse 14 describes Jesus as one who has the indestructible life. What a powerful word. The indestructible life, why? Because he lived on this earth perfect and he rose again and continues to intercede on our behalf. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. He is perfect, but if that's not enough, scripture also explains that he is anchored in giving us 24-7 access to God all the time. Here's the verse that I alluded to at the beginning of our worship experience that now I know you've been wondering, where is that? Where is that? What is that? What does that look like? We're actually going to look at it now. It's in Hebrews chapter four, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter uh, six, verse 19 and 20. And Hebrews chapter six, verse 19 and 20. It starts off this way. It says, we have this hope 
as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now it's all coming together. Now they're even beginning to understand the whole boat concept. And why would he be be described as an anchor? Because Jesus, as the first century Christians are thinking, is this anchor that has gone on before and grown grabbed into literally the sanctuary where they understood God to be. And he is anchored there, secure and firm for us so that we might have a hope that is secure in forever, in a Savior that saves completely, in one who is able to meet us at our most desperate places. You see, these first century Christians who were being persecuted day and night and were considering going back to the old way, many of them already had, this writer is saying, listen, this anchor who is Jesus went before us to the presence of God. And not just one time a year. No, he has gone in because of the cross and clasped in like that small boat, sent that anchor into the harbor and grabbed in and secured us a place docked into the presence of God, secure and firm. No other anchor has done that. No other system does that. Everything else is incomplete. Everything else has been has been supplanted. It is now all about Jesus. Don't miss it. He also saves completely. Hebrews 7, 22. So Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore he is able to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. These verses remind us that Jesus is our forever guarantee and that we are not just saved by Jesus for eternal life, but we are saved by Jesus to also experience, as he does, an indestructible life. So we are saved to a life where we find forgiveness and transformation and healing and hope and peace and purpose and joy. So yes, Jesus is God and he is perfect and he is our anchor and he saves completely. And the question then as we begin to round this all out is what then should be our response? Well, I believe if we place ourselves in the first century church, there's the temptation for us to go, Huh? I mean, I, okay, I know all that, but I know that about Jesus. I'm good. But what if we place ourselves in the first century church as believers who are tempted to give our worship away to other things, just like they did? They were going to a system, but where does our worship go? To self, to money, to culture, to our kids. We worship all types. I'm not talking about in this room. In this room, once a week, we feel good about it. Because we treat God often like a kitty that we pet and he purrs and life is good because we've given him his worship. 
And he says, no, 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 I'm an anchor that is secure and strong. And here's what your response is to be for me, that you live with a hope that I am all that you need every moment of every day, you see. And when you give your worship away to others, you begin to drift. And what I'm telling you is you need an anchor for your soul that allows you to go deep in with him in every moment of every day because Jesus is worth it. Why is he worth it? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, he is open for us through the curtain that is his flesh. He's busted through the curtain. The anchor has gone in. It's become secure. And since we have a great high priest now who's over the house of God all the time, let us do what? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works, not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. With our worship anchored in Christ, we are able to do what? We are able to live life. First of all, it speaks about a word there in verse 22 as a true heart, true. My allegiance is to one God. God, you are my salvation. It's not God and I'm not worshiping you and myself. I'm not worshiping you and this habit. I'm not worshiping you and my kids. No, actually, I am worshiping you. That's the clear focus. That's my eyes set on you. That is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I am laying off all the encumbrances, all of the sin that entangles me, and I am running with perseverance. My eyes set on who? On Jesus Christ. The writer continues to set the argument for our need to cast off every other thing that we might be tempted to worship in our lives and say, listen, throw it all away and with perseverance, set your eyes, set your focus, allow that anchor of Jesus to be where your entire life is centered around. Undivided. I'm not chasing the American dream. I'm chasing God's dream for my life. My one desire is to please him, not man. Verse 22, unafraid, in full assurance, no hesitation. This makes me think about the swimming pool. Not because it's going to be almost 100 degrees today, but because all of my kids outside of Lindley, I haven't tried this with her yet, but I think we're about there, have been at the place where I've been down inside the water. You've probably been there too if you've had kids. And they've been sitting right up here, and I've said, okay, jump. And you know, crazy enough, four out of four of my kids so far have jumped. And they were going to drown if I didn't catch them because they could not have saved themselves because they were secure in their hope that daddy was going to grab them in his arms, pull a little back muscle, but it's going to be okay. With our worship anchored in Christ, we are able to live undivided with our full allegiance on him, casting everything else aside, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, but we're also able to live unafraid. Not 
oh, I'm scared, God, that you're going to take me to Africa. If I say yes to you and you're at the very center and core, I'm so scared, God, if I say something to my neighbors about you, what are they going to think? Are they going to think I'm just kind of some weird person? Am I going to, I'm, I'm so afraid that I'm, if I speak into my kids in this way and I show them truth and I speak truth in love that they're all of a sudden going to leave me and turn around and go the opposite direction or my grandkids or whatever. No, no, no. He's fear not. Whenever you are placing faith and trust in him, it's in the scripture over and over and over and over again. He says, when we do that, when we say, my life is anchored in you and I put my faith and my trust in you, then here's what happens. I can be not afraid. And some of us in the room might have walked in fearful of something. And what I would say is, I have heard speakers on the circuit speak about how we can live in fear as Christ meets us in that fear. And what I would say is, it might be semantics, but I want to be real careful and not make us believe that God just kind of moves in right alongside all of our insecurities and problems and frustrations, because the reality is, He moves in and He transforms. And our faith in Him moves fear out. Last portion. Unashamed, verse 22. Our hearts sprinkled clean. Total freedom. One translation says sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. New heart. But God, don't you remember whenever I... But don't you remember when... Oh. Yeah, that's right, God. You are perfect. And you are all-knowing. And you are all-powerful, but God, I seem to forget that in spite of it all, you love me so much that you choose to forget. And some of us walked in this morning and found it very difficult to worship. And the reason why is because you have been ashamed. Because you have spent too much time looking in the rearview mirror. And God says, my challenge and my invitation to you is to be anchored in my son, Jesus Christ, who does this, who allows you to live an undivided life, unafraid and unashamed. How do we, how do, how do we, how do we get there? How, how do we do it, Randy? You know, as, as I've battled this and thought through this whole process, what I would say is I still believe Oswald Chambers says it best in his devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. He continually goes back to this thought that whenever we're concerned or worried about what the next thing to do is, he's right there saying, well, how about you go back to what I said a minute ago? The last thing that I asked you to do, the last thing that I told you to take a step of faith in, why don't you do that? Because you haven't done that yet. And my guess is, for many of us, what happens is we wind up divided and fearful and ashamed because we have not acted on the last thing that God called us to do. So what is that for you? What is it for me? Maybe the last thing that he's asked you to do was to trust him and completely give him your heart. You've lived divided and ashamed and afraid. And the truth is, it's maybe a fear of death or of failure or of, you know, midlife crisis or who knows what, right? And he says, listen, none of that is going to be solved. 
until the very first thing takes place and you allow me to give you a new heart. Transformationally, Christ moves in because you have faith in him as the anchor that secures you to Jesus, secures you to to the Father forever and ever and ever and ever. Maybe that's the very first step some of us need to make. Maybe the next step is just a step of obedience. Say, oh, I, I know I need to take time every day and open up the word and allow you to sink down in. It's so very hard, isn't it, for us to allow the anchor to be there in the moment 24-7 if we don't start our day off acknowledging who he is. If we don't give him some sort of allegiance, even verbally, as we announce, yes, God, I recognize you are in this moment with me. You are in this week with me. You are here now, and I'm ready to live a life that is fully devoted to you. This is not a sermon full of application, not from the stage. But my prayer is it's full of application from a Holy Spirit that penetrates our ear and says, listen, the next step for you is this, for your family, for you. We pray with me. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Wow, we, uh, we just thank you. The pictures on that screen reminded us that you're creator, but God, this word right here reminds us that <laughs> you offered up your one and only son. to give us hope because he has returned now anchored to you. God, may our worship, may our lives reflect that today, this week.